Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. We recently put on a conference at High Point Church called Sexuality Everywhere. We were looking at the question, how can we glorify Jesus as sexual beings? In this episode, you're going to hear from Nick Gibson, Isaac Gilmore, Maggie Flamingo, John Terrell, Rose Turnley, and Curtis White in a singleness panel as they talk about the vocation of singleness and how we can live in singleness well. Thanks for listening. I hope you had a good dinner and you're back to do some grappling or whatever we're going to do here. Um, there's a, a business writer named Patrick Lencioni and he says in a couple of his business books, whenever you're going to have like an important meeting, have somebody like get up and like envision the thing and like talk about how important a thing you're going to talk about is so that everybody like feels emotionally connected to like what you're going to do. And I think that's a fabulous idea. <laughs> and so I've invited my friend Isaac Gilmore, who is himself a single pastor and unconscionably handsome, to come and to like do like, to do like an envisioning talk for us and like just talk to us for like just for a couple minutes about like how important it is for us to understand and, um, and grapple with vocational singleness in the church, and how important and great a thing it is, yet how important it is a thing for us to focus on. So why don't you give, you, give me your attention, and then we're going to jump into the panel. You want me to stand up, up, up top? Okay. Good evening, good evening. This evening, uh, we are coming together for something that is important, and what we discuss, what the panel will discuss tonight, it's very important to uh, us individually, but it's also important to the church, and especially where we have been, where we are, and, and hopefully good places where we're going. Uh, in our culture, people are getting married a lot later. In 2017, the U.S. Census reported 110 million unmarried people over the age of 18, which is 45% of the American population. Uh, for a reference point, in 1960, 72% of adults were married. And while some of that is cohabitation, um, singleness, is increasing. And among today's growing single population, 63% have never been married, 23% are divorced, and 13% are widowed. So we as the church collective, we are doing something that is essential. Singleness is, is sometimes and unfortunately often looked down upon uh, in some forms of our modern church. Uh, but the Holy Scriptures and the great history of our church tell us something else. And St. Paul even calls it a gift in 1 Corinthians. But do we view it as a gift? Many times I think we do not view it as a gift. And speaking uh, candidly, confessionally, there have been times where I have struggled very much with my own singleness. But that's why engaging conversations like we are going to have tonight are so important. Where culture is being shaped and more and more people are finding acceptance and identity in other places, we must create a culture and a community for singles. But how do we do that? In a day where we minister and the way that we will minister is encourage some to live a vibrant singleness, we must ask, what does a life-giving relationship with our Savior look like in the context of singleness, and how do we foster that in our churches, in our own lives? So panel, I thank you for your willingness to, to be vulnerable. 
to speak from your hearts and to encourage all of us as we seek to live authentic, satisfied, and meaningful single lives for however long we will do so. So thank you tonight. Thank you, Isaac. Um, so am I introducing you guys all separately? So, um, yeah, come on up. So I have uh, tried to select a great panel for you. I decided not to get super young, early 20-somethings, because we would all look at them with disdain and hatred if we did that. So um, I try to pick people a little bit more mature. So, um, yeah. So uh, also I, tr I tried to come up with a panel that, of people who were like kind of different kind of single. Um, people who have like seen their path in singleness different. So for actually, when I talked with Curtis, Curtis is like, no, I'm intentionally doing singleness. I haven't ruled out marriage, but like, I think God has given me the grace to do this. John Terrell is married, but he got married at 40. When did you get married? 44. At 44. So he, this is a, he's, he walked through singleness a long time, but then was still open to getting married and found who he thought was the right person and got married and now he's married. Rose has been doing mission work for most of her life and like feels like she's been open to being married, but like, in many cases, it was actually the calling of the people she met and her calling that kind of led them in different directions, and it didn't seem like it could happen. And then Maggie has just been like working along, doing the work, doing the PhD, open to the right person, but just hasn't found the right person. And then like she's inhabiting her singleness the way that she understands to be best. So like in certain ways, it's like I try to get a good spattering. That's all I can do. All right. So now— um, in order for you guys to participate and for us to answer the questions that you want so you don't have to listen to me prattle on, um, there should be a slide up here about going to slido.com, and there is a hashtag entrance. And then you can enter in. And so some of the questions that the panelists actually supplied to us, we've actually already put in, so you could vote for those if some of you like some of those. You can also add your own questions and vote those up. So, yeah, so you want to go to slido.com, and then it'll give you a hashtag, and you put in M043. And it should take you to that screen, and then you can vote up the ones that you want them to talk about. Does that make sense? All right, so do we already have a first one? Okay, so I'm not in control. Jill is in control, just so you know. So whatever is like the top blue question is the one Jill is telling us that we'll be answering, okay? So can you guys see that way? Okay. So what are the biggest challenges as a single person when it comes to being an active participant in the local church and how have you dealt with this? As the married guy, I can get us started. Um, <laughs> so I've been married eight years, and um, Nick and Jill, I, they asked me probably four or five times, and I kept, uh, kept saying, I'm not sure, but, uh, but it was actually a really good exercise. So it's been great to reflect back uh, on my single time. I would say, um, for me, um, I think um, the biggest challenge was trying to, f to find community that would fill moments of just real loneliness. I was sharing at dinner tonight that Sundays, for whatever reason, I was really connected in a church, had a lot of friends, um, but Sundays were really hard days for me, Sunday afternoons particularly. The loneliness on Sunday afternoons was just acute. And, um, and I had roommates, I mean, I was really deliberate to find good roommates and really build community around me, but there were... There were moments where I really did feel um, my singleness in ways. I, I, uh, and maybe those were Sundays a day where, you know, often nuclear families are really together, particularly maybe Sunday afternoon. So um, that was something that was um, 
particularly acute for me during my single years. Okay, cool. You guys do need to hold the mics really close to your mouth. If you can't smell the breath of the person who preceded you, you're not holding it close enough. Okay. Is yeah, this Maggie. good? Yeah, it's so good. I can talk really loud, too. Um, well, for me, I think the biggest struggle has been feeling used by the church because I have so much time, and I tend to volunteer a lot because I'm an introvert, and that's the only way I get any social interaction with people. Um, but then I very quickly get overbooked, and I don't actually meet people because it's very hard to, like, you know, watch two-year-olds and talk to someone at the same time. Um, and so it can be very difficult, and there's been moments when I've tried to use my singleness to kind of serve the church, but also use that service to replace what I felt was missing in my life. And so, for example, in the toddler room, um, there were moments where I would just start crying. Like, there, I remember very well in the toddler room a couple of years back where a little boy brought me a baby doll, and I just started bawling in the toddler room. Um, and so no one noticed, and I quit. Like, that was the last time I worked in the toddler room. Um, and I think that there's moments when single people can feel used by service, mm -hmm. um, and that makes active participation hard at times. Um, and the way to combat that is very easy. Talk to people. And, I mean, the biggest thing is that's on me, not mm -hmm. just on other people. Like, I need to be that person forging those connections with my fellow, um, like, volunteers. Mm -hmm. And so, like, as an introvert, <clears throat> expecting that to automatically happen with service yeah. was a false presumption I had. And so I had to work through that. I think I've heard you say before, Maggie, that like inviting me into the family, the whole family, the intergenerational family, I don't mind hanging out with kids, but invite me into the whole family so I interact with everybody. And then it, that works because I can serve you. It's not weird me talking to your husband. And like, I get, like we have real good interaction. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. And I think... A lot of times, like, it can be really hurtful um, when someone introduced themselves to you in church, and this has happened to me in the past, where they're like, oh, are you new? And it's like, I've been your child Sunday school teacher for years. Mm -hmm. Like, that, that's unacceptable, frankly. Yeah. Um, and that's happened to me in the past. And so I think that that idea that as a family, if you have children and you are you're, you're, that's a way to welcome single people into yeah. your life, is if they're working with your children, which oftentimes single people are, get involved. Ask how your kid's doing. Um, yeah. you know? I think something yeah. like two-thirds of our children's ministry volunteers are single. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, before we jump to this next question, can I ask you guys to make some comments on, like, roommate strategy, like, um, like living with roommates versus living alone, like how do you think that through? Because I know a lot of people actually, they utilize having roommates as part of that like pseudo family of the shared living space. It's not just saving money, but it's actually creating this like camaraderie. Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, I've experienced a lot of different roommates. Some of them bizarre. Yeah. Really bizarre. Wow. Yeah. Um, renting a room in a multi-room apartment where you don't have control over the roommates can lead to really interesting living situations. And, the, and I've also lived alone for several years. Um, I think the, that God's comment on humanity, that it's not good to live alone, is something to be taken extremely seriously. Um, I used to always hear that as, oh, we're meant to be married. And I take that more generally to be, no, we're meant, 
really meant for community and marriage as one way for that to happen. Uh-huh. So whether you are living alone or living married or living with roommates, you actually have to pursue community. I've lived with a lot of roommates who you don't share anything with and you never talk to and that doesn't do anything for you. Uh-huh. Um, you, you, you have to pursue community. It doesn't matter who you're living with or what the situation is. If you're not intentional about pursuing it, it's probably not going to happen because it's hard. Uh, you have to give up your own agendas. You have to give up some of your own preferences. You have to be willing to listen to other people talk about their problems, and you have to actually pursue caring about other people. So um, that's God's wisdom for our life. It's not good for us to live alone. Mm-hmm. I found personally that I, I just gradually and surely went darker and darker when I was living by myself. Mm-hmm. So I don't find that to be a very helpful strategy for me, and I'm, like, blessed to have amazing godly roommates. It's God's gift to me in my singleness that he provides the relationships I need in ways that I can handle it. So, cool. yeah. Um, any guys on this? I can move to the next thing. Jill, which one's, which one's blue? So uh, I'll just go with the top one. How can a church cultivate an atmosphere supportive of solid friendships and relationships beyond romantic ones, in your view? I have so many opinions. I know. (laughs) You should share some of them. I will share some of them. Um, So one of the things I think that is deeply concerning about singleness in the church, and I can only speak from my perspective as a single woman, but single women are seen as a threat to marriages and a threat to relationships. And even today, one of the ideas behind purity was get rid of all improper relationships, which literally translated to you can't have friendships with the opposite sex. I don't think that's true, and I think that is very hurtful in the church. I'm not out to steal anyone's boyfriend or husband. I want to befriend you as much as I want to talk to your significant other. And I think the key is that as a couple, You need to be very protective of your relationship and the purity of that relationship, but you also have to welcome single people into your home and into your community. And that if you are doing that together, there's not a threat from me or from a single person. Yeah, Um, I think that's a really good point. Can Can we nuance that like one step deeper? So like to say, get rid of all relationships, that aren't married or same gender to yourself, right, um, is too extreme, right? Um, but at the same time, like, when you have cross-gender relationships, the possibility of sexualization over time is real. So um, it sounded like one of the ways you nuance that is, in your case, like, if you're the wife, like, don't see me as, like, some person who wants to talk to your husband. See me as a person that, like, both of you would want to talk to and know, Right. So one of the things that I keep in mind, because I think as a single person, and I've talked about this before, you have to be so much more flexible with your friendships and relationships. Like something that was really close and important to you when that person enters into a relationship or moves is going to change. You don't have that permanency as Mm -hmm. a single person, but you have to be flexible and transition with that relationship. And oftentimes that means including that person's significant other. Um, And I think that you're sacrificing so much as a church community 
by just automatically saying, I'm in this relationship, I have to just cut off anything that might potentially be a threat. That's not to say that there aren't relationships out there that are improper. They are, and that's where accountability comes into play. That's where you have people in your life that are saying, look, the way that you talk to this best friend you've had since high school is not okay now that you're married. Mm -hmm. That needs to change, right? right? Have people in your life that can say that, but don't automatically put a red flag on a woman who is new to the church and pretty, and suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, she's a threat. Like, that yeah. is so hurtful. Um, and it just, it can isolate people very quickly. Yeah. And you're not saying that, like, the husband should take that woman out to lunch to welcome her to the church alone. Not even remotely. Like, you're just saying, <laughs> so like, one of the things I've noticed with you, Maggie, is, like, you like to get into conceptual conversations. And sometimes those are going on between men. And so it's just enjoyable for you to, like, enter into those conceptual conversations because, like, that's how you're wired. That's what you're studying. That's what you're doing, right? And, like, if the wife of that, those guys, let's say, let's say two guys are having that kind of conversation, they're having, like, a, how are your kids doing? Like, mommy conversation. And then you walk up, like, that has this, like, negative dynamic. But, like, all, like, all that really happens is, like, your life isn't babies right now. It's conceptual stuff and like you want to have a conversation and so there's these like dynamics that are natural but that can be seen negatively and like on one level you're saying we could just calm the heck down a little bit while also being realistic about the sexualization of relationships at the same time we can do both of those things is that yeah is that, I think we polarize it and I think if you're a very young couple or you're really struggling there's a reason to polarize it and focus only on yourselves but mm -hmm. the problem is as a church that's where we stop that's not a mature church right. a mature church can handle single people and married people together yeah. and I think that that's the ideal we need to strive <laughs> for um, and I think if we really want to cultivate that atmosphere um, we need to cultivate it in that way yeah I think are you about to say something John? I would say larger churches have more opportunity to do this but I think programming that reaches a wide variety of interests, um, small groups, uh, outdoor, um, Sunday school, different kinds of learning experiences. And I think also from the, from the pulpit, teaching um, and so forth, um, talking about and uh, in, in drawing in examples that go beyond the family, that describe other social units, uh -huh. uh, work relationships, um, right. relationships from the community, relationships that we, and roles that we play, um, in institutions. Uh, this is really helpful because a lot of us, uh, those who are single, um, and, and all of us, um, ha are placed in those places and, um, and, mm -hmm. and invest in those relationships. And I think to the extent that the church can model that and yeah. use examples, that really helps for folks to, to begin to imagine what healthy relationships look like in lots of different settings. Yeah. And for me, I've been in a care group at this church for years. The same people, I think you guys, some of you that are here would know the Herons, Jim and Sandy, and the Zindas. And so we all, most of us live in the north side, and it's an ongoing relationship that I don't just have with the women, but also with the men. And I think that's a great way as a single person to be in community. And um, yeah, there's, it's a real strengthening thing, and it's, when our church, when High Point went through a lot of turmoil a few years ago, one of the reasons why our group stayed, everybody in that group stayed here, and it was because of the small group. So it was, they, were, they were a stabilizing factor and a building block, um, the small groups can be, of a church. So, and it, ours is also, most of the time, intergenerational. 
So we have younger, like university or just out of university people, as well as we've had families, but it's been a little while, so mostly it's, um, you know, people whose kids are all grown up and left. So anyway. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a number of things I would say about that, but let's move on to the next question. So uh, the next question is, what does sexuality mean to someone who's single? A question that I'm sure can be interpreted in numerous ways. But like, we've said a lot about sexuality. What is that, like, what does that mean when you're single? Means I'm still female, even though I'm not married and in a relationship that God has ordained or designed for me to experience and express myself in a sexual manner with someone. And so I still have to accept that as part of my identity and not repress myself in some ways as far as personality and how that influences my personality. But I still have to have self-control and submit that area to the Lord. And um, one of the things for me is that when I was a kid, I remember thinking that when I grew up and got married, then I would be loved. And so I never really thought about sex as being about love. I thought about marriage as being about love. And also, when I was in junior high, I started reading my Bible. So I really wanted to please the Lord. And that's another way of saying fear the Lord. And so I was involved more than my conscience really permitted. But I remember, well, Nick said it earlier, about, well, I'm not going to, I won't repeat it. But anyway, for me, I thought I shouldn't do anything with a person that I would do with if I was already married. So, like, if I'm married, I shouldn't kiss and hug somebody, right? So I, why should I do that when I'm single before I'm married? So that was my mentality. And even though I thought that, I still did it. And then I felt shame and also rejection because... I was left, or I knew that it was wrong, and I left. So there were still ramifications of what I did. And I also, one of the things that kept me from really pursuing sex just for the sake of sex was knowing that I would probably, in my shame, turn that into kind of a self-hatred. And I, I knew that I still wouldn't be fulfilled, and I still wouldn't feel loved, unless it was in the context of a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship. Uh-huh. So, uh, as a single person, sexuality means I have a living sex drive. Uh, you have desires. You, I'm still a guy. I'm heterosexually attracted. I'm well within norms. Everything works. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so... Um, so that means I have, to, I have to acknowledge that. I have to deal with that reality. Um, and so I don't have, as we've just repeated over and over again, like there is no biblically sanctioned outlet for that. So you have to decide what you're going to do about that. And... I guess I'll go one step further and just address some some of those things. What do I, how do I go, what do you do then? Like, okay, great. Now I fully acknowledge that I'm a sexual being and you can't do anything about it. Isn't that wonderful? 
Um, and that, thankfully, isn't the Christian story at all. Um, there's a tremendous amount that you can do about that. And I'm so glad for God's grace. I, I remember praying when I was younger, uh, dear God, take away this temptation. You know, I just can't, I just can't handle this temptation and falling. And, um, he's so gracious not to answer that prayer. I prayed that prayer for years. And never, like, wish I would have talked to more people about that. But no, he just, he's not interested in taking away our temptation. He's interested in setting our hearts free to love him. And, um, you know, I wasn't aware of how much um, my drives for sexuality were pointing to unhealthy patterns in my lifestyle and lack of community and lack of turning my heart towards God. And um, I, I just say it's amazing when you find yourself in community and you find yourself turning your temptation into prayer. Lord, I feel this. This is meant to point to you. Help. Like, just that turn. It's amazing. You can, you can walk in freedom. You really can. And, and there are times when you're just like, well, yeah, it's been like, it's been a couple months since. No kidding. And then you're, Poof. all right. Well, so you, you put your eyes on the wrong thing and you, you'll end up going there. But there is a way to navigate with God's grace and with God's people um, in community, a way to, I mean, the ancients called it a sublimation of the sexual desires into something that drives you towards community and towards faith towards God. Yeah. I also love that the ancients called it continence. So it sounds like one of the things you're saying, Curtis, is that there's a certain way and maybe a special way in which when you're living a single, in a single vocation, that you are kind of alone with yourself in a way that like, if you use that, like if you let God use that, you'll have to face stuff that if you had a relationship where you were able to find like some certain comforts in some of that comfort being a sexual outlet, um, because sex is very comforting. Like, it may be that, like, you can allow God to let you in your singleness face things that you might try to, like, just comfort yourself through. And if you let God use that, you might actually grow and change and grow stronger in ways that you might otherwise try to avoid. Yeah, we often do use um, our sexuality as a coping mechanism against the dysfunction of our lives. Um, teach high school and I know a lot of, I just know a lot of people that are like, this really sucks, so here comes the porn, right? Like, that's, that's a thing, that's real. Um, it is numbing, it is medicine. It's yeah. a bad drug. It's a horrible master. And so, yeah, there was another thought that I had and then I lost it. It was a really good thought though, the one you lost. I'm so sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, do you guys want to, Move something else? All right, let's keep moving. Um, what would it be like uh, if you would like to be married someday, what is trusting God in your singleness looked like for you? So like instead of being like, I think I'm going to be single permanently, so this will be my mentality. If you're still open to meeting somebody, how do you, like, how do you find contentment when you're still hoping it's going to change, kind of? Does that make sense? I 
I just keep on doing what I do. But then there's also the thing where, like Maggie was saying, you can, they can be, you, you can, I don't know if you really said it, but anyway, you can find your identity in something else beside God and your value in something beside God. And so I'm working with a missionary organization, mostly on campus, and I have to not let that be the thing that feeds my soul. I still, I need to go to the Lord and make sure he's the one. So I can't, um, yeah, there's not another way to fulfill that outside of him. And the, you know, having good friends. So, yeah, I, I feel very loved and I belong to a lot of people in this city. And most of my family lives in another state or other states. So, yeah, I just practice what I know while uh -huh. I wait. So. I, I mean, I think for me, it's hard because, and a couple of these other questions get to this too, dating sucks. Um, it's just, so, it, like, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say maybe, but like in, in our particular culture right now, um, I think trusting the Lord with how to provide a potential partner mm -hmm. takes almost all of my trust constantly. Like um, online dating platforms are filled with misogyny. So not only are you like potentially just devastated that there might not be someone for you, you're also facing these assaults from guys who are just creeps and you don't know how exactly to deal with that and that affects who you are. And so it's like, all right, Lord, I thought you wanted me to do this thing, but all I'm getting are these really weird guys. Like, and then you start to make compromises that are a little scary. It's like, well, you know, there's a that couple of That guy wasn't as weird as the last 12. Right, yeah. exactly, you know? And you're like, okay, and then suddenly, like, you're getting really strange conversations. You're like, nope, that's not it. Um, and so you have, you just have a lot of other things to deal with, I think, mm -hmm. in today's culture when it comes to It seemed to like trust. there was a lot of empathetic laughter yeah, and I groaning. Mean, I, oh, man. I mean, I'm, I was on the bubble with this online dating stuff, right? And so I've tried it multiple times over the last decade or so. And it's, man, I have stories. <laughs> Yeah. So many. But I think another thing too, now that I'm like well into my 30s and I really I'm really facing this moment, mm -hmm. um, and the last I'd say 18 months, it was really in my face where the Lord's like, you have career choices to make. And I realized it was okay to make choices that might lead me to a path that is a single path. Like I've always kind of hedged about it. I've always and I've, I've explained it this way in the past. Like I was waiting for a guy to like come and marry me so I could kind of quit grad school. Just a confession there. That's why I've been grad school for 10 years. God bless you. Did not happen. <laughs> and so now I'm like, they're like, you gotta, you gotta graduate, you gotta get a job. And I was like, oh, what's next? I mean, my goodness, this is terrifying. Yeah. And being on like a tenure track professor is like trying to make partner at a law firm. Exactly. Like it's, it yeah. doesn't suit well to like right. swing. And in. so you have suddenly these choices where it's like, okay, do I really throw myself into a career that will take up all my time and might shut doors? Mm -hmm. Like that's a possibility. Um, and people assume that's what I chose, but it's not. And so that's a big trust issue for me. Like me being like, all right, Lord, you're going to open a door for me. I'm going to go through it. And I just have to find joy and a purpose in what you're asking me to do, regardless yeah. of what it is. And not yeah. to kind of manipulate the situation like I have in the past to like stay in this limbo state uh, until I get what I want. 
And so I think that for me has been a key change in the past year and a half when it comes to trusting the Lord with my singleness and, and that holding on to that hope that it might possibly happen someday, but also not living a life that's going to be less lived because it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I, I would say, um, you know, now married, looking back, you can see kind of that whole season and maybe, you know, you have a little different perspective of it, but. But I, I really looked at that season as, as kind of a time of um, preparation, of practicing faithfulness. Um, and I think that applies to lots of dimensions of life. I mean, I think some of us may have vocational aspirations that um, aren't realized yet, and we feel like our circle's kind of small, and we want it to be bigger, and we have to exercise faithfulness in that place where God has placed us. And so I think um, singleness is, is a time to... Um, kind of practice faithfulness. And for me, part of that was to exercise patience. Part of it was that I had some brokenness. I, my parents were divorced when I was 16, so I was carrying a lot of that. Um, I was the oldest child. I, I owned that in ways that were different than my younger brother, who was married at a pretty early age. And, um, and so it was a time for me to actually get some help on that and to work through that and to trust God with that and to let God repair that. And so I was a I tried to be attentive. I didn't do this perfectly uh, by any stretch of imagination, but I, I tried to be attentive in those, in those moments and see it as, a, as kind of a time to practice faithfulness as I would other dimensions of life as well. Uh-huh. I want to give you an encouragement from Deuteronomy 8. Remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. There's a reason for it. Whether you'd keep his commands or not, there's a purpose for the wilderness, you guys. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna that you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by sex alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8. Read it. Read it. And I think we can idolize sexuality, too. I mean, obviously, we can idolize. But, I mean, the pictures, we don't, we get these wonderful pictures in Scripture of the, the new heavens and the new earth, and they're really fun to kind of look at. And, uh, and, and they're awesome, the glimpses, and they're, um, they're there. And we probably don't spend as much time as we should looking at them. But one of the glimpses is that there's actually something better than marriage. There's something better than the, the marital union. And, um, and so that... That's actually good to remember as a married person. I think it's really good to, to, to think about as a single person that no matter what our trajectory is kind of in, in this stage, that we're actually moving. The trajectory, the, the final destination is something that's even going to be greater than the best marriage, the best sex life you could imagine, um, and, and all the other things that come with marriage. And so yeah. I think that's helpful for me to to calibrate, I guess, maybe in ways and realize that eh, actually we're, 
we're moving to something that's even greater than, um, than the best marriage that you could imagine. Yeah, yeah. I'm going <clears> to <throat> add to this conversation because I think one of the things that can happen is the character of God can be maligned by the devil or the powers of darkness, however you want to look at it or express it. And it, it happened for me. I realized that I thought that the Lord hadn't been there for me. And I repented of that thought, that unbelief. So I walked around my apartment and I said, God is for me. God is for the Turnleys. That's my last name. Because I also felt like he hadn't been there for my, some of my family members. And it was a place of just standing against the lies of the enemy. And they can be very subtle. Um, you know, in the Garden of Eden, you know, the devil basically um, insinuated or suggested things. Did God really say that? And so it can be hard to trust the things that God has said as being right or even true. And um, so that's one of the things that we're contending for. There's a spiritual warfare component to marriages. And I, I think you said that already, that that the enemy will try to keep us apart as much as he'll try to break us apart if we already are married. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that's just something to think about if there's an accusation in your heart against the Lord for your place of as a single, don't let that be there. Because that means that the devil's getting the glory instead of God in your mm -hmm. heart. And we, wanna, we, want, we wanna give the glory to God that's due him yeah. He's he's not only trustworthy, he's love-worthy, and he's worship-worthy. Those should be, his character is what makes him those things. He is good. There's no shadow of darkness in him. He does not lie. Um, he doesn't manipulate us. He's not keeping something from you to torture you or because you're not good enough. He really does love us, and he wants good for us. It says, no good thing does he withhold from those who love the Lord. So it, we sometimes think that God is the reason why we're not married, and don't let that accusation be there. Uh -huh. So. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next one. We could, any one of these we could talk the whole time on, probably. Um, in the current atmosphere in the wake of the Me Too movement, it seems that men are reluctant to pursue women how do we reconcile this? One, I suppose there's two parts to that question. One, is the first premise true? Do you think that when men demonstrate a reluctance to pursue women, it is because of things related to the Me Too movement? And then secondly, if so, how do we, how do we deal with it? I have a very unsympathetic response in my head, so I'll let you guys <laughs> talk. Pursue for sex or pursue for marriage? Uh, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, it's really hard to sexually assault somebody you don't put your hands on. Yeah, I think, um, what, what do you mean by pursue? Right. Like, in the wake of the Me Too movement, um, like, men should just learn to be better not to not do anything. I mean, yeah. for heaven's sakes, asking someone out for a cup of coffee is not assault. Um, and I think that, especially in Christian circles, men need to give women more credit for recognizing that. Like, 
women are not going to assume certain things of you if you're a man of character. And if she doesn't know you're a man of character, that's the problem. Because she should know by just watching how you interact with people. Um, true story, both my brothers, who are now married, um, were turned down by their wives the first time they asked them out. Right? Well, one got one date out. She realized it was a date and was like, nope, no second date. Um, and so... <laughs> But both of them, yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. I love her so much. Um, uh, but over months, like they were in the same church groups and things like that. And again, dating culture and online makes this more difficult. But both of those women who are now my sisters recognized men of character when they saw them. Mm -hmm. So guys, it's not just making a first move. It's how you live your life and how you interact with all the women in your life. That's what's getting you noticed. Mm -hmm. And also being willing to like <clears throat> go out on a limb and like, it's okay to tell a woman more than once that you want to pursue her as long as you're mm -hmm. not being creepy about it. But it's actually really flattering when someone comes up to you, even if you're not interested in them. Like, you're not saying something bad to them. Like, mm -hmm. my goodness, I appreciate you and your walk with the Lord. I want to get to know you better. I'm not like, you scumbag. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm, yeah. I might disagree with, like, your yeah. attraction and be like, eh, it's not mutual, but I'm not going... To, like, you shouldn't be embarrassed by that. Yeah. And I think that the embarrassment that we've turned this into is a problem, so. Yeah, I think in terms of like just statistically what's been going on in terms of men pursuing women, this was, this was already on the exact same trajectory long before there was a Me Too anything. That like video game use, the lack of taking people out on dates, like, like hooking up and during hanging out, like the men just not being tough enough to be rejected and like asking a girl out straightforwardly so if she rejects you, it's obvious, right? Um, because that is kind of emotionally devastating for a guy. I think sometimes women don't realize that when you're like, no, I'm not even willing to give it a try. Like, that's, that's really humiliating for a guy, even if nobody's watching. And so um, I, think it's, I think it's that stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah, the Me Too stuff, it's real. Most of that stuff is being perpetrated by a pretty small group of serial assaulting men. Um, and, and can I just add yeah. to that, though? Dating online that is part of this problem because it's really hard for Christian guides to know how to make a move in an online platform because, and I don't know how you do it. It's not ever been effective in my opinion, but I know people who it's worked for. So it's possible. Talk to them. Yeah, it is possible. Um, but like, because there is such an emphasis on physicality, what you look like, like, what do you say at first? How do you get to know someone like mm -hmm. chatting online? Like, Talk to people who it's worked for and ask them what their strategies are. Like, learn from people who've done it well, because it can be done well. But I can guarantee you, like, go in the whole, you know, hey, I think you're such and such is a 10, which has actually happened to a lot of my Christian friends. Like, don't rate their bodies. Like, that's the Me Too movement reaction. Um, yeah. And that, I think, because the label Christian is put on those dating apps. Right. That's the way women are starting to perceive Christian men. But again, that's not the Christian men of character that I think are represented here. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you just appreciate getting an email saying, I saw your profile. There's, it looks like there's some really interesting things about you. Can we, like, message a couple of times? And then, like, if somebody sends you a couple of sentences, there's something that you can ask an interesting question about. And then you can, like, go from there. Like, but, yeah, because that's the problem with, like, pictures. 
like you're like what are you supposed to say it's like you look re- you just look really intelligent and creative in that picture you know like you can try that but it's it's it can be hard but like you're, you're almost you're almost in a similar situation in person unless you can actually spend a little time around people but I like I know Christian guides that have been, guys have been like interested in a girl and they're like I joined the ministry they were serving in and I served in that ministry for a couple of months so that I could get to know them and decide whether or not I wanted to ask them out you know and I think that that can be appreciated. Yeah. But like, for, like, okay, th- let me just give you a little pastoral advice. Like, you, like guys, you just got to do it. Like, you got, you've got to, if, if you won't be embarrassed if she says no, you're not asking her out properly. Like Nicole says, you should use the word date. And you should, like, directly ask the person out, and you should tell them why you're asking them out and what you're asking them to. And you should refer to it as a date. And um, it should be for a reason other than attractiveness. So you see a girl that you think is pretty, which is probably the first thing you're going to notice. Then you should find out a little more about them. So that when you ask them out, you don't go like, man, you just got great cheekbones. Do you want to go out for coffee? Like, <laughs> you're, you know, you're like, you can just say, I know you go here. I feel like I feel like our church is kind of serious business. I'm kind of hoping you're serious business. Would you like to go out for coffee for an hour? And I will leave you alone at 11:46. Like, um, but there's lots of ways to do it. But like, you've got to ask if you're if you won't be embarrassed if they say no, then you're not flattering them by asking them to say yes. Does that make sense? And women kind of like straightforward decisiveness because it's one of the marks of honorability. Does that make sense? Because they, women want to be cherished. And one of the ways you cherish them is like, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to open myself up to you humiliating me, even though I barely know you. I'm telling you you're worth that. The chance you could say yes is worth to me the fact that I'll feel humiliated if you say no. And women are like, that's cool. And like, you, if, you, if you learn how to ask a person out honorably and on the, for the right reasons— and I'm not going to teach you how, but you can date out of your class. Like, it's like— it, because guys are not— Guys are just not bold. And a lot of that character stuff, people don't realize that for like women, status is very important. Status is driven not by physique. It's driven mostly by character once you're older than about 12. And so like becoming a strong man is fundamental to pursuing the woman who you actually want to marry. Just like we, we talk about sometimes the book, of, the book of Ruth where like Ruth and Boaz were both extremely formidable people. Clearly, Ruth was a hottie. Okay, like, that's clear. But she was also clearly over 30, and she'd had a husband already, and she was working in the field. She was, like, not super, like, she's probably super tan, and she was not a high-status woman, right? But when Boaz approached her, like, he was like, yeah, God bless you for not marrying one of the younger women, because clearly she was hot enough to. But mainly what he admired about her was her clear character for taking care of her mother-in-law. And one of the things he admired, she admired about him, were things rooted in his character. And so, like, part of this process is becoming the sort of person of character and substance that another— because you're going to bind yourself to each other permanently. Like, cutiness is not going to work. I have one other thing that I think is important to say. Um, I think our church, when it comes to friendships that turn into dating, we really do the whole marry your best friend thing, which is awesome, and I think that's worked out for a lot of people. But it also has created a lot of friendships where girls think it's going to turn into something more, and guys don't. And so it marks a friendship as something more than it is, and girls get really emotionally invested. Guys are either clueless or naive, or they're just being st- Anyway. Um, Not so- perceptive. 
not perceptive. That's that's a better yeah. phrase than I was going to use. And I think that like women in that case, it's okay to step up and be like, look, this relationship, I'm emotionally invested. Yeah, you're dawdling. Right. Like either like we move on beyond this, yeah. or you need to back off so that yeah. someone else knows I'm available. I mean, honestly. Right, and that's fundamentally important, especially once you graduate for undergrad. Like, don't waste undergrad, but like once you're, you're like 22, like guys are gonna screw around with your 20s if you let them. Because it's like, you're young, you're pretty, like why not? And they don't care, like they're fertile into their 60s. Like, what do they care? Like, and so like, they will screw around with your 20s and you sh cannot let them do that. I'm sorry if that was too direct. That, that went somewhere I wasn't expecting. But anyway, <laughs> that's fine. Let's talk about fertility. Now, I think we should move on to the next question. Yeah, okay. What's the most unhelpful thing a married person has said to you who's not on the stage right now? I have someone I'd, I have someone I'd like you to meet. I think they're really great, and they're super single. So I would say, I would actually say I appreciated it when married people would offer to set me up. So I had a very different, I understand that perspective, but I was really great. Were those people super single? No. That was I the just, term, like super, I was like, is that a thing? Yeah. yeah. I don't At even know what that means. say really promising. It's me. Why I'm super were they single? single? Okay, but. <laughs> I want a cape. <laughs> here, here's what I wish would have happened. Okay, all right, here's what I wish would have happened. Here's what I wish would have happened. What, where are you in your life stage? Like this person out of the blue trying to set me up. Like if they had known me, if they had bothered to ask, mm -hmm. they would have known something about me. Mm -hmm. And maybe I might have been able to listen. But there's the supposition that... You must be desperate. I must be desperate and that you... They don't know anything about me, and they think they found the right person for me. Like, that's mm -hmm. ludicrous. So this was not a person who was a friend. Okay, yeah, that's so, a little presumptuous. So, like, what, I mean, I, I... I found a woman, and she can fog a mirror. Yeah, it's not comforting. I mean, for me, it's when they meet me, and they learn that I'm getting a PhD, and that I'm not married with kids. They're like, oh, I'm, you know what? Good for you for making that choice. That's not your favorite? Not okay, man. Not okay. Yeah. One of my very good friends, if not my best friend, told me after she went home to visit her family that the pastor in, his, in her church, his wife had died, and she married, he married someone who was 60. And it was, the lady kept saying how it was really worth the wait, the wait to get married until she was 60. And I'm 62 now. And she thought... She, was, she thought that would be encouraging to me, and I'm thinking, well, I kind of would like to be married earlier than that. <laughs> <laughs> and how would you feel if I said, you know, I can't wait till you have children in your 60s? Because there's a timing in those kinds of things that you mm -hmm. kind of have an expectation for in your life. And mm -hmm. when she got married, she said, oh, I'm just so glad that part's over, and I don't have to worry about that anymore. Anyway... I understood her heart for me, but it wasn't that encouraging. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. Do you guys want a second round of unhelpful things married people have said? <laughs> yeah? Do you guys want to do another round? Cool. 
Another round of unhelpful things married people have said. Very simple. So are you content yet? Are you content yet? Yeah, the idea, and I, I ranted about this this morning, so I won't go on long, but the idea that as soon as you're content, God will send you a spouse. Okay. And so like, they're just checking in. So like, how's that contentment going? I'm like, I'm still single, if that's what you're asking me. Yeah. How much of your session was ranting? 50-50? Yeah. The rants are good, though. Okay. Anybody else have a second shot at this one? No? You got a third? Okay. So, um, I'm supposed to—there's some questions I have that didn't fit up there. Okay. Some might argue that when single people have a desire for a marriage but can't seem to find a suitable partner, one of at least four things is happening. One— the person has unresolved issues preventing a healthy relationship from initiating or forming. Two, the person has such a unique or special level of godliness that a suitable partner is hard to find. Three, just read the question. <laughs> the person just hasn't found a good match yet, but it could happen at any time. Four, God has chosen to intentionally keep that person single and kept suitable partners away for a season. Do these or other popular categories resonate with you, or other other reasons? I, I think I'm just going to start because we talked a little bit about this question over dinner, and I'm definitely in the minority. Um, so I'll just give the, the minority least, report, the minority report, okay. and uh, let the others share as they will. Um, I found those character, those stereotypes, to not be helpful, and. Um, to be not helpful, you said? Not be helpful. Okay. And that my—when I read that, I thought, well, I imagine the stories of singleness to be about as varied as single people are. Okay. So if you really need to stereotype people, I suppose those are the good ones, but I don't know why you'd want to do that. Yeah. But that's okay. the minority opinion on the panel, so I'll let the others share. Okay. What are some of the other convictions? I thought it was a good list. Um, I thought there were some things that maybe weren't on the list. Mm -hmm. I can think of relationships um, that were pretty healthy relationships, and they, they were for a season. Uh, they, they were, they didn't result in marriage, but it was a positive relationship. So I think God is at work in our relationships, and um, some, not every relationship you're going to be in is going to result in marriage, and um, and that's okay. I don't think you. We have to. Um, be disparaging about that. I think that's just, that can be a positive thing. So I, that would be one thing maybe I would add to the list, that God's just using relationships to, to, to work on your character, to, um, to reveal things to you, uh, and, that, and it can be positive. Mm -hmm. I like the list. I thought it was good. Okay. And at any given time, I probably had some of those things, experienced all, all four or five of those characteristics. Okay. The first one that you mentioned was about having unresolved issues. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the things that I've seen is that marriage can be a place of healing for people that have unresolved issues. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are really times where if you really have deep issues of distrust and um, different kinds of woundings that you really probably should get counseling and also um, keep speaking the truth to yourself. But... We're not ever perfect, even when we don't have to be perfect to get married either. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I'm too godly. Can't touch this. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, that, I mean, that's who I was thinking of. Clearly, You're who I was I mean, thinking of when I wrote that. This is obviously written for me. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think for me, the fourth one, um, that idea that there is something that God is doing in my life right now, and mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know that I can see it, but I do have confidence that at one point I will know. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of my biggest regrets, but not regrets, is that I actually prayed a lot about God revealing why I was single this past year. And actually, I, I blame my presence here on that prayer. <laughs> so be careful what you ask for. Yeah. Uh, okay, so as a pastor who has pastored numerous people who I believe were single because of something going on in them, I totally agree with you. Um, Rose, that like, there are a lot of people with, who with issues who find a suitable person willing to marry them. Okay, so the idea that like, if you're single, it's because you have an issue, and, and then you can then read that the other way, that if you're not married, or if you are married, you don't have issues, like that's crazy, okay? However, however, I would say there are some issues you can have that the fruit of them is they make you unappealing as a partner to other people. And when that's one of the things you have, then dealing with it helps to make you more appealing, and that can be very Absolutely. helpful. Absolutely. And as a pastor who has walked numerous people through that, and, have, and having had the conversation being like, there's something wrong with you, and it's making you unappealing, and you can deal with it, and it can go away. Like, I've had people, I, there, just last week, there was a young person out in the hall who's in a very committed relationship that looks like it's going to a marriage, and the person was in tears, and she was like, this church— my, my last couple, few years at this church has ch- totally changed me. I'm a completely different person. And then my boyfriend, maybe fiance now, I can't remember. I think fiance now, noticed me. Like, because, and I watched her, literally her whole countenance, her posture, who she was as a person just change because she was being healed. And, it, and I could see it made her more beautiful because, as a person. And then all of a sudden, like, but— you should not confuse that with the idea that if you're not married, it's because you have issues, and if you are married, you don't have issues. I mean, that's all crazy. And there are a lot of issues that can be worked out in marriage. But it's always great to work out as many issues as you can before you're married. And I would just say that that's going to be true as an employee, as a colleague, as mm-hmm. a teammate, as a brother, as a son. I mean, mm-hmm. it's going to play out in lots of different relationships. So uh, yeah. I think you're right, but— the Holy Spirit can change us in ways that people are going to notice in all kinds of different life settings. Yeah. I think if you're single, though, and you, you aren't finding someone like you'd want to, it's worth asking people who love you and care about you, is there anything in my life that you think might be making me unappealing? And, and be ready to listen. And I think, I think especially guys should do this work. But I think, I think women can benefit from it, too. Yeah, let's—okay, let's move on. Um, when physical touch is your primary love language— how do you best feel loved in the individualist society we live in as a single person? Well, as a single person. Some of my friends get pets. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually so serious. That's dead serious, right? Yeah, yeah. It's still kind of funny, but yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I, I think another thing to add to that, like, it— there is something about being single where you get like less used to people hugging you, less pe- like you just you feel less comfortable around that. Um, and so, like, as someone who can get kind of uncomfortable in some situations, even though I grew up in a very physically 
um, like hugging family and everything. Like I just in my 20s, I got awkward with that. Um, but having some friends and things like that, that are like, I'm not putting up with that. I mean, shout out yeah. to Giselle back there. Um, she's like this week. Um, and she hugs me all the time. And like, but it's a great thing. Like there, there is something about friendships that just having that physical like connection with people, it's okay when you have yeah. friends to like touch them and ha like touch their arm, give them a hug, like things mm -hmm. like that. And I know with some of my um, friends who are same sex attracted, I've had this conversation with them um, about how to bring like singleness, like how can I help them feel more comfortable? And one of the things a friend of mine said is like, ask me if I need a hug today. And I just thought that was so powerful. Like mm -hmm. that's what he needed me to do for him to help him feel part of the community. And so having those conversations and asking like, hey, do you need a hug today? I think can be a little step towards that. Yeah, yeah. That pet thing is real. I have a daughter who is single because she's 15, and <laughs> she like she sleeps with a cat and a dog every night. And it, the, she's like, I love, I love the dog. It's I tell you, like as a pastor, I believe every pastor's kid and probably every pastor should have a dog. And I cannot tell you, like my wife did not want another dog after my last dog died. And I'm married, okay? Like, and my wife touches me sometimes. Like, but like, <laughs> I, I would go home and I would, like, I would hug Sammy. And I like, and when he died, Alexis like, I know we need another dog. And like, honest to God, like Luna helps me. She is, like, I feel like she's a gift from the Lord. Like that fluffy little thing. Okay, um, what are some, what is something that God has done in you because of your singleness? That's a wide open question. It helped me understand the nature of God's love. So one time I was praying about a person and I said, God, make him love me. And then I thought, wait a minute, God, I wouldn't want you to do that. And you don't make me love you either. So it just helped me understand a little bit more about what God's love is like. And um, just the reality that God chooses to love us. He doesn't have to love us. And so it was a freeing, it was a good thing for me to think about the depth of God's love that he, that we, he wants us. So that's a, just a tiny little thing. Yeah. Anybody else? I mean, I have a lot more time for a lot of different relationships. I can invest in my nieces and nephews' lives in a way that I definitely couldn't. Um, I can be there for my siblings, like when they have something going on, it's like I can just be there. And I think that in, I can do that with a lot of friends as well. Like singleness is an opportunity. And so if you're just spending it watching Netflix, stop. Yeah. How do you feel about the fact that this is a special se session called the special session and placed very separately from the rest of the sexuality conference? <laughs> I have a feeling Maggie, you have a feeling Maggie has a rant about that? How do you honestly feel? I mean, yeah. I think that in many ways, like, look at the population here, right? These aren't mostly married couples. These aren't mostly couples with families. I mean, there's definitely some here, but the fact is, like, the single population wants to be more included in the church, but oftentimes a lot of couples and families are like, we've got other things going on, you take care of yourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it is indicative of some of the issues that are part of the culture right now. And so, um, yeah, that's how I honestly feel about it. But I'm glad you're all here. 
I'd rather have it than not. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see how we integrate it in the future. Yeah. I want to engage in an extended apologetic for why we did it this way, but anybody can ask me if they want to know later. Um, okay, let's go to the next one. For Maggie, how difficult is it being an intellectual and a single woman in the church? Did you write that question? I'm just kidding. Did not. I want to know if one of my sisters did, though. All right. I drag them around with me everywhere. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it is a struggle. Um, it really is. And I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that, A, when I say I'm an intellectual, people automatically think I'm calling myself really smart. Absolutely not what I'm saying. Um, I'm saying I just spend most of my time thinking too much, which is not the same thing as being intelligent, perhaps the reverse. Um, but I think that, like, there is a challenge in that other women, because oftentimes they do have families and they do have other responsibilities, don't spend as much time in the kind of content that I spend my time in. And so it can be hard for me to form relationships with other women, which then I think adds that idea that I'm a threat because I talk to men. And also, like, when I think about career opportunities, if I'm taking the Bible very seriously, I have to consider teachings about gender and the role of women um, in a way that a lot of women don't necessarily have to really think very deeply about. Guys love thinking about it, but they're always like, but, you know, I'm not sure. I'm like, well, yeah, you don't have much at stake now, do you, buddy? Um, mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of times there's conversations that I really want to have with other women, and it can be very rare for me to have those conversations. Um, as So you, you feel, I don't want to say that I'm like specially isolated as a single person, because that's mm -hmm. not true, and I think the Lord has brought a lot of community into my life as an intellectual, um, but I think that sometimes there's a distance there that is artificial on both sides. And so one of the things that I do is I try really hard to invest in the lives of my friends' children and where they're at with their kids, because that's something I'm quite capable of doing. It just takes a little bit of extra work and changing some diapers, but I'm totally capable of that. Um, but in those conversations and being willing to have those moments in kitchens, helping clean up. I actually have some of the best intellectual conversations ever because I found out something about moms. They really like using their brains um, and they miss it. But yet I kind of like push that aside and be like, oh, well, you're not studying all the time. So you can't, like, that's ridiculous false dichotomy. You can have those conversations, but you have to create the space for them. And since I'm alone in the library and they're at home with their six children, that can be hard. So we have to create those spaces. And I think that helps the experience as a, an intellectual woman in the church. Yeah. Cool. Um, is it missionary dating or otherwise inappropriate for a mature Christian to date an immature Christian? Yes. It's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. Any other thoughts? No. no. Yeah. As a pastor, I've, I don't, that doesn't go very well usually. Um, okay, great. Um, are, the different, are the different pressures put on single women versus men indicative of a misunderstanding of engendered sexuality? That's a good, good number of syllables. This was my question. <laughs> so then can you answer with just one I, word then? <laughs> yes. 
I, I believe so, but I want to hear other opinions. I mean, really, I'm, this is something I'm very curious about. Like, I think that there are different pressures, but again, I can only speak from the experience of being a single woman. Yeah. And so I think that I perceive feeling like a failure because I'm a single woman, feeling unchosen, feeling um, like shameful that I'm still single. That's something I really fight with a lot. And I don't know, because like, all the books about singleness are written by women. So I don't know the male perspective. Like, I think there's something about women, like we're crying out for more like information and community on singleness and like grieving it more openly. So I, I don't know if there's actually different pressures or if it's just that women talk about it more. So yeah, that's why I asked the question. I mean, I've, I have single women friends who, when I listen to them, I hear the same kinds of struggles that you are reflecting, and I have not experienced those things. I have had to grieve loss and had to fight the demons of loneliness, like I imagine every human being on the planet has to fight, married or not. Um, I certainly don't. I don't have to fight the narrative of shame. And I hear that from you, from, from other women. From people like you. And so that seems to be a difference. Um, is that coming from the difference, and, <laughs> difference in engendered sexuality? I'm not smart enough to answer that question. I don't, I mean, I don't know how you to frame that. You probably just don't have the linguistic tools. It's not, you're not smart enough. Okay. Right? Um, I'm sandbagging, but like, yeah. I'm not sure how to put those in categories that make sense to me. Yeah. It sounded like in your answer, you were saying they were different. But is that coming from a misunderstanding? I yeah. mean, I'm not. Or expectations put on from the outside. Definitely on expectations. Yeah. 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 I, yeah the question's not for me. I mean, I. Yeah, but you're the pastor. <laughs> I actually think that there is some legitimacy to slightly different engendered expectations. Um, now, it's true, like, and Maggie probably knows a lot more about this than me, that in the history of American culture, men pursuing women has not always been the fashion. If you go back a certain number of years, women pursuing men was perfectly fashionable. If you go back even further, men pursuing women was more, like it. It's like varied even in Western culture and in British Anglo-Saxon culture over the years. And of course, America is much more of a cultural melting pot now. Now, a lot of the cultures that have come into America have more patriarchally-centered relationship initiations, like Indian culture, where there's a lot of arranged marriages, right? But um, I think—so it's very hard to, like, get some of that stuff out and, like, try to figure out if there is a biblical thing, right? Um, I think mutuality in relationships is fine. I think starting, starting relationships with a certain kind of mutuality is fine. I do think there are some advantages— to women allowing men to initiate relationships, but I don't think it's in any sense mandatory, right? Um, which kind of gets at this next question about like engaging in friendships and where might those go? Can you bring up that last one again? No, so it's the second one now. It, like, is it okay for single men and women to have deep friendships with the opposite sex? How do you avoid physical desires that often follow emotional intimacy? Like, I think there, there are certain ways in which women engage with people who they think might be good partners, but oftentimes they'll just try to let that evolve. The, the problem is, is that oftentimes you can waste, you can waste a lot of time, right? So anyway, I, th I think that, I think that having so somewhat different expectations is okay. 
but most of those differences like aren't rules, right? They're dynamics that tend to have helpful dynamics. Like men working on their courage is a helpful dynamic. Um, women like adorning themselves with the beauty of character um, so as to be noticed by those men can be a helpful dynamic, but it's not like some kind of necessary thing. Um, I wouldn't, if a guy was like, hey, some girl asked me out, can you believe that? I'd be like, well, do you like her? I mean, like, I, it, wouldn't, I, it wouldn't be a, a problem. I think some women who initiate relationships are unhappy later because they find that they're with a guy that isn't driving the relationship like they want them to, right? So I think in some ways different expectations can be helpful if, they, if they're serving and if they're within biblical parameters. But I think sometimes you just get these cultural, objectificational kind of ones that are not helpful. Like women have to be like super hot and like all glossy and painted and everything. And, and some of that stuff is pretty dumb, I think. So it just depends. I, yeah, like women are supposed to be like better beautified than men, right? Even though apparently like one of the biggest growth industries is male makeup now, which I don't understand. No? I get it. <laughs> But I lived in Korea for a year, so that's yeah. where it all started. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So uh, let's jump to that one. Uh, is it okay for—so um, some of these questions, too, there's a bunch of stuff on the Escaping Babel podcast series in the Engage and Equip podcast on, like, is this sort of stuff okay? So if you haven't listened to the Escape, Escaping Babel episodes in the Engage and Equip podcast, you might like that. However, we have not asked these four people that question. So what do you think about, like— getting in friendships, and then knowing that an evangel uh, evangelistic and romantic attachment might ensue, but it might only ensue one way. I found it tricky. I, 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 I want to believe that that can be true, and I, I'm sure it can, but I just always found it difficult to orchestrate. This is probably a good, you know, there was I, probably a lot of folks are too young to remember this, but maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, there was this whole thing about you should date in packs. It was like wolves or something, you know, like you go, you go on dates with like 20 or 30 people and stuff. And I, I just thought it was kind of weird, you know, especially if you're older. Like I could see maybe if you're in college or something, you could find like 20 or 30 people to, to go on a date with. But if you're older, it's going to be difficult. I think this is actually maybe groups might be helpful for these friendships, these, these mm -hmm. gender, cross-gender friendships, where you actually can't have good cross-gender uh, friendships, but maybe you do it, it, maybe one of the ways you eliminate or minimize the confusion a little bit is to, is to go in groups, to have kind of a circle of friends mm -hmm. and, and interact that way. Like um, five and four, uh, three and six. Or six and three or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Twelve percent. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but I, it seems like a lot of the experiences I had, I had some really great, uh, you know, female friends, but a lot of times that, that would happen in a, a group dynamic, and that would help uh, maybe eliminate some of the confusion. I, I really want to believe that can happen. I just think it, uh, I, just, I just found myself sometimes in confusing situations um, because of it. Uh -huh. I have had a lot of messes because of that kind of dynamic uh -huh. and can say that being in a group won't save you from that. Um, you're dealing with uh, people's hearts, and uh, the best things that you can probably do is guard your heart and try to be aware and in conversation with people. It's one of the strangest things is like you have to have an intimate conversation with someone about how you don't want to have an intimate conversation with them. <laughs> right? it's, it's terribly uh, difficult. 
Um, so I've had to learn as a single guy who loves to empathize with people and listen carefully to others that I have to guard that ability because I can send signals that I never intended to send. So there's just like becoming aware as a guy that my actions mean things to people that I never intended and that matters to them and matters to me. Um, like just learning how to navigate that. But then there's also, uh, God has really blessed me with a circle of women that I am friends with. And it is so amazingly healing and helpful and beautiful and great, um, but it has to be done, I would say, carefully and slowly and prayerfully and with honesty. Um, wow. It is not easy to do, but it is beautiful when it happens. Yeah. Um, some of the dynamics of this might dovetail in this next one. Is it okay for a woman to ask a guy out? If not, how can she show interest? Which, never mind. What, what do you guys think about that? I plead the, fl- the fifth on that one. You believe what? I plead the fifth. I, I think. Really? It, yeah, kind of. I mean, so here's the thing. Like, is it okay so for, for example, a woman to ask a guy out? So, for example, being coy is one op- option. <laughs> yes, you can be coy. Uh, well, I, I, I've done this a few times. Like, I've asked a guy out. It's never worked out well. So, I honestly don't know, like, if that's part of it. Like, yeah. is it because I asked him out that that was the problem? Like, if so, I mean, that's his issue. Um, but it also, like, there's something to be said, I think, and, and guys have told this to me, like, they, they want to be the ones to take the initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, like, I, I've had friends that have done really interesting things that I think are really great, like saying, hey, if you ask me out, I'll say yes. Not actually asking him out. But making it clear, I mean, I, I think those mm-hmm. kinds of things might be good approaches. I, I really yeah. don't know. Um, yeah. So, okay, yeah. I'd like to make a pastoral distinction here that may be lost on some younger people um, in the video game generations. So um, there is, is a difference between flirting and lewdness. Okay? There is a difference. So f- what flirting basically is, is showing interest in another person that if they asked you out, you would say yes. Like, it's essentially saying, like, it's essentially inviting an advance, a, a reasonable advance, right? That's different from trying to tap into their sexuality and bypass their consciousness to, to pull them to you with your sexuality. So, like, busting out your cleavage with the plunging V and, like, doing the blah, 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 blahs to, like, look super hot to try to get their attention. That's lewdness. Flirting is like like listening and laughing at their mediocre jokes and being like, that's really interesting. And like orienting your body towards them. Like, in a, like there's a group of four people and like you, you, you like intentionally orient yourself towards them. Um, and you know, like Lexi and I are 40 now. And so like I've been at parties where like single people are there and we just kind of giggle. Cause like you can see that one's flirting with that one. And like, it's so obvious for me. And then like you look at the guy and you're like, I don't think the guy knows that she's flirting with him, right? And so, like, I almost want to, like, write a little no and be like, pass this to Aaron over there. You know, like, it, like, as a guy, like, sometimes it's very difficult for guys to pick up on that because they don't read it well, you know? Um, And so I apologize for that, ladies. It just is what it is. But, but there, like, there is a difference between flirting and lewdness. Flirting is okay. 
if they're not married or something. You know, like if, it, if they're like a person who could ask you out, it's okay to do things that are subtly but hopefully communicative that you would be interested in them that aren't lewd. You should not be trying to access their sexuality in any form of arousal in order to draw them to yourself. But accessing the rest of them to allure them to yourself is perfectly fine. It's one of the marks of engaged femininity. In fact, I, I've talked with, I was talking with somebody a little while ago about a girl, this guy who might be interested in this girl, and he was like, I don't understand why I'm not interested. I like, all the stuff is there. I was like, do you feel like she ever flirts with you? And he was like, no. I was like, do you feel like when you're around her, she's like being very careful not to exude femininity towards you? And he's like, I know she's trying, but like, yeah, I, kind of, I don't feel like a man in the presence of a woman. Like, there's any kind of sexual energy at all. And it like, it, 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 it like, I, I'm not as excited about being with her because of it. I was like, yeah, okay. Like, that, that's, that's why you feel that way. Like, you want the guy to feel like he's in the presence of a woman. And you, like, there's a certain amount of appropriate sexual energy that isn't lewd, that isn't accessing arousal, but is demonstrating your femininity and that it's responsive to his masculinity. And that, that triggers something psychologically. And you want—that's what feminine wiles is. Yeah, but check yourself. Yeah. In that, make sure that you know what femininity is. Yeah, Versus absolutely. the world's version of it. Right, right. Because yeah, I think that there are lots of Christian women— who are actually being very feminine and yes. that, but like you're so like, oh, but they're not doing X, Y, or Z. Like, I'm not like romantically intrigued by that. Like, well, check yourself. Like, yes. what do you, what would she have to do to make that happen? And if it's, if it does cross that line, yeah. then it's your problem, not hers. Right. Rando. Yeah. If she has to get your attention f through some visceral channel, then like you don't get, yeah. That's why I was like, hey guys, like, like, if, if, if you don't mentally pick up on it, then it's lewdness. You have to, like, you have to have the perception to be like, oh, yeah, like, she's really paying attention to me and what I'm saying. And that joke wasn't that great. And, like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm to totally agree with that. Um, do you love your life? Tell me your f the favorite part of being single. Because, yeah, because there's always this, like, are you lonely? How do I do? But, like, is there a— Victorious message of is like no my like I'm either my life is very meaningful very productive very enjoyable like how would you how would you frame that? I love the opportunities that I've had as a single person, but I could have done a marry many of these things married too, but I've been able to travel overseas and do mission work, short term outreaches in Japan, and I meet a lot of very interesting people at the university. So, I mean, I could still do that if I was married, and I would. But it's one of the things, probably the most, one of the most fulfilling things in my life, uh -huh. to have that, um, that place of investment. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So. I'm, I love it. It's, it's a gift. It's great. Um, I, I get to serve the church in a way that's just unreserved. And yeah. I just, I get to serve. I, I get to lead worship. I mean, man, that's an honor uh -huh. to be able to lead worship and just to be, to be able to be there, to be able to say, yeah, I can do that. Yes, I can. 
Um, I've been able to go overseas and I can spend months overseas and that's without, I mean, the advice in uh, first and second Corinthians, you know, I can have a single mind to please the Lord. And uh, if I need an afternoon where I need to go find a piano and worship, I, I just go do that. Uh-huh. I can just do that. And that's like, and I hear the stories of married people with children, and that's, uh-huh. that's inconceivable. And I can, I can, no, and it does mean what I think it means. Um, <laughs> wow. uh, and so uh, it's great to... Yeah. To, to be able to serve, to please the Lord and serve the church is a tremendous honor. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it's great. It's deeply fulfilling. Because it, right? Because, okay, let's bring it back to the big story. This is way more than about me. It's so much more than about me. It's so much more than about you. This is about God's kingdom growing on the earth and our participation with the creator of the universe in that glory. Uh-huh. And it's just awesome. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to Mike Beresford, our executive pastor, and he was talking about meeting with Isaac, the guy who was here. And he was like, you know, he came to a really small church that was really struggling. And like, he's been there a year and something, not that long. And the, the church is growing. And like, if, if Isaac wants to work a 90-hour week, he can darn well work a 90-hour week if he wants to. Now, I'm not saying that's healthy, and he should. He wants to sleep in his office. He can sleep in his office. He can do whatever he thinks is necessary to grow that church because he's got nobody that he's got to answer to other than Jesus, right? And when I was married and I was trying to help a church grow, I was married and I had a little kid and I, there, was, there were absolute limits to what I could give the church and what I couldn't. And, um, you know, the Nazarene church on the east side of town is benefiting from the freedom in Christ Isaac has to serve that church. I hope, if there are any of you here, I hope you appreciate it. Um, but like the kingdom of God grows— through that, and hopefully it's fun for you, dude. And, um, but I like, like there are so many nights where I like, I have to, like I tell people, I'm sorry, I can't meet with you. I can't help you. It's time for me to go home. I have four children and a wife, and I have to go, I have to go now. And um, it, that hurts every time I tell somebody, like, I'm sorry. Um, and there are people I can't meet with in places, and there are things I can't do because I'm married because of prudence and those are things that many of which would not be true if I wasn't married. And so um, there are innumerable opportunities and innumerable goods available to single people. And it is always a tragedy if we don't embrace them because there's always that temptation of having the pity, the pity party, you know? Can I just say one thing? Um, I think that, and I talked about this a bit, like I think being single can be a great thing um, and I can enjoy it, and I do enjoy it, and there's, there's moments where I find opportunities to really do things that I enjoy. Um, but I also grieve being single, and I can do that in a way that's not sinful. You have to be very careful not to let it turn into bitterness, um, mm-hmm. and hopefully it's a season in my life, this grief, and I'm not going to you know, necessarily carry it through um, forever, but... Like, I, I don't see, and I said this this morning, I don't see joy and grief as being mutually ex- exclusive. You can do both. Um, so, yes, I enjoy singleness, but I have to be very careful not to turn it into a life of leisure that's about me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, uh, yeah. uh, absolutely, it's great that I can eat cheesecake filling for breakfast. Awesome. But, like, 
turning my singleness into being all about me is actually one of the quickest ways to fall into a trap of being really miserable. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like Curtis said, you have to turn it into that kingdom work <clears throat> that like the Lord will give you opportunities to use your singleness. And when you are working, when he, when you are active, that's when he can use you. And that's when you can find real joy. Yeah. Do you guys have anything to say about like, um, can you discern like a lifelong call to singleness? And if you could, like, how would you know? I mean, obviously that's just cause you're single, you know, or have been single doesn't make you experts on that. But like, do you have thoughts like how you've tried to sort out? Like if that's maybe your calling or not? I mean, I think Maggie's been like, I mean, preferably not. Um, I know Curtis has, has considered that that might be true for him. Yeah, I guess I can share just a little bit of my journey in that. Um, what I try to tell people, I word it carefully, like to the best that I know, I believe I'm called to pursue lifelong singleness. And God is absolutely open, you know, I'm open to him changing my mind, but... But that's, that's the second thing, not the first thing. Like, I, you know, I meet somebody new and I'm not going like, oh, maybe she's the one. No, no, I'm not looking. This is, this is a decision that I'm making for the kingdom's sake. How did I get to that place? Um, it's kind of a journey. I, like, this is a slow dawn, not a light bulb moment. Um, just little bits and pieces of self-revelation, conversations, events that happen. Um, you know, I, I talked to my mom about this, and do you remember this conversation? Oh, yeah. Like, maybe late middle school, cooking together in the kitchen. Mom and I love to cook together. It's great. And, um, and she, I, what was happening in mother's heart, I don't know, but she asked, Curtis, you think you're ever going to get married? And I stopped, and I thought, no, probably not. Like, flip it, moved on. And, you know, and I, you know, for whatever reason, I remember that conversation. And after talking to lots of other people, recognizing that that is a bizarrely unique and very minority answer to most, that's just, like, not, uh -huh. it's non-normative. It's non-normative. We'll say it that way, right? That's a non-normative answer. It's not a bad answer. It's not a, there's nothing wrong with me, but... Right. That's just, I find those things coming out of my heart. I find, like, when I would talk to other people, they'd be like, oh, when I get married, it's going to be like this. And, like, like you, Im you imagine the day of your wedding. Like, I've never imagined that day. Uh -huh. Like, that, that's not rolling around in my psyche and my imagination. That's, like, not what I dream about. And I'm like, well, that's non-normative. <laughs> Like, um, most people that I know are thinking and longing about those kinds of things and, yeah. and imagining those kinds of things. Just, you know, I dated when I was in high school and in college and found that it got very unequal very quickly. And it's like, oh, that's just, that's kind of interesting. Like, I care about people, but that doesn't seem to be. And I, mm -hmm. when I consider my family of origin and my social structures where I grew up and the kinds of community that I was in, it makes even more sense. Like, I'm totally comfortable being deeply involved in very separate communities that I can mm -hmm. just walk away from because I lived far away from my church, far away from my school, and those were both far away from my neighborhood. So mm -hmm. I just, like how I grew up relating to people. It just kind of all sort of makes sense to me in hindsight. Like, yeah, this, is, this could be a thing. 
Yeah. And so I've just, I'm like, all right, if this is going to be a thing, I'm going to choose it. I'm going to make it worth it. I'm going to pursue it for the Lord's sake. I'm going to see what's in there, what gold's buried there that people haven't found yet. Yeah, I think, so I think let's, I want to make sure people see the biblical categories first. I think, I think both of them you touched on, right? One of them is in 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul essentially says, if you have the, the grace for it, in that context, meaning like continence, the capacity to be sexually faithful, right? And he's like, if you don't, it's best to find a suitable person to marry, right? So one is, do you have the grace for it in that do you have the, the continence, the ability to like control yourself, right? And everybody should actually develop the ability to control themselves. But there is a, like a level on which you believe you could do it indefinitely, right? And then the second is in Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about people who aren't married. And he, said, and he says, basically, there's some, there are some, he uses the word eunuch, but essentially means permanently single, that are born that way. Like, there's something actually physiological about them, right? Some who are made that way, and then some who choose it, right? I don't want to exposit the first two categories in particular right now, but he, he basically says there's some people who choose for the sake of the kingdom to function as a eunuch, that is, to not have any children and to be single. And um, he's like, you know, and that's good. Like, that's a really hard thing to do, but it's good. And so I think you, there's, there's those two criteria, I think, for a Christian. I think a Christian has the grace and wants to do it for the kingdom. And then they choose it. I think they could biblically say that they're experiencing or trying to walk in a, call, a permanent vocation of singleness. That doesn't mean you can't be surprised by someone. But it just means that, like, you are doing that intentionally. But I, I also want to clarify, like— that doesn't mean that I didn't have lust. That doesn't mean that I right. didn't have problems with pornography, that I didn't, right. you know, have difficulties with masturbation. Like, those are things. Uh-huh. And, like, what am I going to say to a woman? Like, I really can't control my body. Can we get married? Like, that's a horrible proposal to make. Like, yeah. this is not the kind of winsome man that a woman is going to want to marry, right? right? Like, right. you know, I prayed about it, and I just can't control myself. So what do you say? You know, like yeah. that's 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 dumb. So, right. right. So, guys. But I, but I think I do think that men and women can say, I don't feel like I'm especially cut out for singleness, and I'd like to find somebody suitable to marry. I but I do think like yeah, I read first I read First Thessalonians before it was like yeah, everybody needs to learn to control their body. Yeah. So that's absolutely true. Yeah. And and like if you know, just to be honest, like. If you're filling your eyes with things that are inflaming your desires, no wonder you can't imagine a life where that's not happening. Like, there are practices and lifestyles that can enable one to imagine a different life Mm -hmm. if we would have the discipline to engage in them. So I'm just saying, guys, step up. If you're not revving up your sexuality, you could imagine an interesting life that didn't include sex much better. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so the next question. As a divorced woman in the church, I feel shame and want to grow. I want growth and healing through Christ, but I don't always feel welcome in the church. Like, I, I feel like I'm a failure. Um, now, none of the four of you have been divorced, right? Um, but, I, but that is a decently common experience of people who have been divorced. I think that's true. Um, well, I mean, I think this comes back to a lot of women feel failure. 
um, when it comes to singleness or when it comes to, to this. And I think that divorce really highlights it because you actually have something on paper that says you tried and you failed. And I know a lot about divorce um, because I study it, um, and this is a very common thing. And I think the church needs to be aware of what that feeling is. Um, and part of it is you have to, you have to share what that feels like. Because a lot of people who are single just put you in the same category as themselves, and it's not the same category. Um, and so in some ways you have to be open and have those conversations and let them know what is different. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as not feeling welcomed, I think again that comes back to um, that question of how do we include people in our community? Um, because whether you're divorced, single, same-sex attracted, married, um, you belong in this community and you have the right as a child of God to other people's time. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes when you feel that rejection of divorce, you feel unworthy of other people's time. Mm -hmm. And that's just completely inaccurate and not what God's kingdom is about. So, yeah. Do you think any of the four of you that no matter what your vocation is or like what your status in that sense is, that there are ways in which out of your vocation you signal to people in other vocations stuff they need to know about you. So like if you're a married person, you might signal to people in the different single vocations or married vocations, I'm married. My family's very important to me. I'm trying not to be so self-involved in my own family's comings and goings that I can care about you. That that's like a signal I need to send. Whereas Maggie says like there's ways in which I try to send signals to wives that I'm not a danger to your family, that I want to be your friend, and I care about your children, and I want to be part of the bigger family of the church. Like, and that I, I, because I think that if you're a divorced person in the church, there are signals that you can help other people relate to you by sending, um, by um, like recognizing that like you want to like you want to resolve whatever was unresolved in that relationship, that you're not going to tell other people divorce isn't a big deal, that like as a divorced person. I think divorce is a bigger deal than any of you. Like, I think, I felt its destruction. I felt its pain. Like, I would do anything to stop a divorce. And like, maybe my divorce was unbiblical, but like, I learned about divorce when it happened to me. Or like, to, that, that like, because usually, sometimes when Christians are divorced, the signal they send is, I'm not going to tell you anything about what happened to me. I want you to, sight unseen, affirm my divorce. And I don't think a biblical Christian could do that. And so I think if you're a divorcee, I think one of the things that you—there's two things you have to do. You have to, as best as you can and as godly ways you can, resolve what's going—what happened in your divorce, either into full freedom or recognizing it wasn't biblical. And demonstrate to the other person—people who God is calling to have a high marital ethic in the church, if you enter into it, or, or you don't, and to say, I'm on board with that. I'm a divorced person, but I am on board with what God says about divorce. And I think if you send that signal, it's helpful for people who are wondering what you mean. I think same-sex attracted is the same deal. If you say, I'm same-sex attracted, one of the questions that the biblical Christians around you want to know is, and how are you, and, and what do you think about that? Like, are you going, because everything's, you're going to ask me to affirm anything you do, and then you're going to tell me that if I don't do that, I don't care about you. And so I think one of the signals of same-sex attracted persons is, is like, I'm same-sex attracted. I'm not going to ask you to basically be unfaithful to Jesus, to love me. 
I'm going to realize that there are lots of ways you can love me, and I'm going to invite you to love me in the ways that you can in good conscience. I think all of us in our vocations, whatever our, our orientations or vocations, there are ways in which we need to say, I'm in this vocation. Let me signal to you that my selfishness and my desire to be justified is—I'm not going to ask you to not serve Jesus fully to love me, and I'm going to try to love you. What do you guys think about that? Is that too mean or something, or is that— Great. Okay. Last question. I think this is my question, actually. What is something that you've learned about being single over time that you wish you'd known much earlier? Okay, I definitely have an answer to that. Um, Being in an odd godly relationship is a million times worse than being single. So, I mean, the reason that I could so quickly say that it's inappropriate to missionary date, no matter how mature of a Christian you you are— it's because I did it. And I can quote chapter and verse a lot of theology books. I mean, whatever mature Christian means. Um, I think I, I kind of fit the bill at that point. Um, and it was an absolute disaster that left so many emotional scars. It, it, it was devastating. It took up years of my life. It put my spiritual walk with the Lord in great chaos and danger. And I absolutely always thought I could manipulate him into becoming a Christian. That was my number one goal. It was never that I didn't want him to be part of the kingdom. It was that I thought somehow by martyring myself, I would bring him to the gospel. And that was the loneliest place ever, even though I was in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And that was, that is definitely something I wish I would have learned okay, much I, earlier. This is so good. I want to clarify it. You are not saying I wasted years of my life. I wish I'd known that. You're actually saying this thing I did was so terrible. It was terrible for me. I tore myself in half and like the thing itself was so bad. Right? Yeah. I think that's great. And I think just that idea, I mean, if there's really something that I wish I had known so much earlier is that you can't, you can't have a a relationship that's fulfilling if you're not sharing Christ. You just can't. It is such a missing component that you will feel such an ache. And it's a different kind of loneliness because maybe you have someone to eat with, but it is a deeper loneliness. And that is something that I just, I didn't compute in my early uh, single life. And I think that it, it, it's definitely dramatically changed the way I think about singleness and how, where I'm at now and the kind of loneliness that I face now is a better loneliness. Mm-hmm. Lack of a better phrase. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Anybody else? Um, there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. There's a difference between um, boredom and solitude. And learning how to cultivate solitude is tremendously helpful practice and a really pretty historic one. And so, um, Uh yeah, the time, the times when you feel lonely are the times when God's spirit is calling to you come closer. And that is going to be a fight against flesh and natural tendency and some of the greatest disciplines you can start forging gold in heaven with. 
Uh-huh. I, I would just say God, God really is faithful. God pursues us. And I, I think sometimes you sit on a panel like this and just I'm reflecting back on a single life and you can sort of put it together in a way that feels so coherent. And, um, and I was kind of a kicking and screaming single. I mean, I will tell you that it was not, it was not easy. And I was trying to live it out faithfully. And, um, and now I'm married. I have a 22-month-old um, girl. And You're 70? I'm 70. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a joke, people. Laugh harder. <laughs> Can't believe I repeated it. You yeah. know? <laughs> uh, but God, God is faithful, and and I, I do think, um, dis- despite our, um, in spite of our wanderings and wanderings, and you know, so I, I guess I would say that that I'm just really mm-hmm. grateful, and I'm you know I would have never had, thought I would have had even a chance to experience fatherhood. I love it. I wish I'd experienced it earlier. I mean, that's a real loss, actually. So I think there are consequences sometimes. I, my singleness was prolonged because of, it wasn't an, a, a lack of desire to work on things. It just I, I needed time, I guess. I went through puberty when I was in my 30s, so it, everything got to me. Um, but... Okay. But it, I, I don't even know where I am. I'll just pass it. Okay. It actually hasn't been as hard as I thought in my, in my 20s that it would be. And at the same time, I don't, um, while we've been here, I've been praying that God would bless all of you guys, um, help you find someone. And um, yeah, so anyway, God, uh, God has taken care of me in the places that um, there would have been care in a marriage. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, um, I'm going to give him one last shot for a final thought, um, and then we're going to wrap it up. I, I do want to just advertise two things real quick. One is there is both a men's and a women's cohort in Forgiven and Free. Um, we didn't—Marcio, I don't think, knew that. But there is a women's cohort for people, women struggling with sexual addiction, that Aaron and a couple other women lead. And so if you're a woman struggling with sexual addiction, that's available to you, so, so you may want to utilize it. Um, and secondly, on the Engaging Quit podcast series, the Escaping Babel series focuses a lot on initiating relationships, dating, like all that, like all those like romance questions that have kind of like fallen out of memory. Um, there's some very specific instructions on that. And in most of those, there's two women voices. So there's a good bit of female um, input. So I'd really encourage you to listen to that and maybe talk about them in some of your small groups. Uh, but I think, I think you'll find that helpful. Any last words? Or were those? Oh, you got another scripture. Awesome. Yeah, I just thought, because I've been praying about this and really thinking about scriptures that have been meaningful to me, and uh-huh. I just want to share a couple of other nuggets that are profoundly helpful at giving bigger pictures and setting your heart in the right place. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, okay. I won't unpack that differently. Um, let me start with this. This is from Malachi chapter 3. You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. You say, what do you mean? What have I I said against you? God's response is, you've said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? I was thinking about how especially pursuing godly singleness can make you feel that way. 
Like, this is just stupid. And God says, you're being arrogant. And additionally, we can have this attitude. Oh, we call the arrogant blessed. And all those people who are doing evil and doing whatever they want with their bodies, and they put God to the test, and they get away with it. And God's response is this. Those people who feared the Lord, heard them, seems like they're mine. They're mine. He writes their names in a book of life. He says they're mine. So don't think that God doesn't see both our complaints and our faithfulness. And then this is the promise um, for those of us that might want to pursue longer-term singleness. This is from Isaiah 56. Yes, that's such a great passage. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Stay in the story. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain I'm only a dry tree. Don't let that settle in your heart. Why? For this is what the Lord is saying to us. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Uh-huh. And it really doesn't matter where you fit in that spectrum. There's a promise when we're faithful to the Lord. There's, I mean, it, he didn't, he, if he had saved us, it would have been enough. But he promises us a better name uh-huh. and an everlasting place with him. Yeah. It just makes it worth it because he's worth it. Isn't he worth it? Yeah. He's just, he's worth it. He's the supremely worthy one. This is worth it. Mm-hmm. It's worth the loneliness and the isolation. It's worth the marginalization because he's worth it. That is one of the only promises that Jesus physically defended with anger when on this earth. And he quoted that line. Yeah. Yeah. He's very serious about those promises. Yeah. Well, let me pray. I'm sure the folks on our panel, I think Isaac's still here, uh, and we'd love to talk with you a little bit more if you want to talk or talk with each other. Um, I hope this is helpful. Um, so God bless you guys. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you so much for whatever you taught every heart that's in here. I pray that everybody's here um, was able to receive something personally and that um, we'll be able to love other people better because of what we learned. And I pray, Father, that we would, um, whether we're pursuing somebody else, whether we're trying to um, walk in singleness, um, whether we're trying to do both at the same time. Father, please help us to bear our sexuality well, 
to enjoy the life that you've given us, to have a good attitude about it, even when it's hard, to have joy, even if we have feelings of mourning. And Father, we pray that however, whatever vocation we find ourselves in, we would walk faithfully before you, and you would show us the way forward. And we pray that if there's anything um, that through which you're holding something until we're ready, you would show us how to walk into readiness, how to receive what you want us to have, and how, to, how to, to listen to your teaching and follow it. And I pray, Father, that for all of us here, you would give us the grace to live the vocations you've given us, and you would teach us to learn to look to you for everything we need. We trust you and love you and adore you and have hope in your promises because of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.